The title is interesting in lieu of what we will be able to discover concerning Elisha, whom we have been tracking, serving faithfully and remarkably. But his tenure is now coming to pass. He's achieved that which God has purposed for him to do. We'll take just a brevity of an accentuating point that he's making before his eyes close. It's important. There's a time in which our eyes will close. And yet, as we also know, in our faith, according to doctrine, they will be opened in the next blink. The twinkling of an eye. I still remember Riv's stat, one billionth of a second, whatever that means, instantaneous to us. To be absent from this body, in faith, a relationship with the Lord, we become present with him. And whatever this world threw at you, whatever for you was a hardship, no longer is integral to what you will experience in a place that is perfect and has been perfectly situated for us as we've been perfected. And so in 2 Kings in chapter 13, it's just a great passage. But the times were not great for this man, meaning they were tough. As he would have assessed the politics of his day, if you would, the church of his time, he was a spiritual man. Divided kingdom, that means there was a divided church. The term church meaning that all along it was a place that God had assigned the Jews to be able to have fellowship with him as a nation, to be able to enjoy coming there with appreciably the opportunity to be forgiven of sin and to enjoy the relief of what that meant when a priest would proclaim the offering was acceptable, both to the nation, but also to the person bringing the offering. So Elisha, even in his day, would have found much in the area of frustration because of grievous contention, violations of his nation personally against God, whom he followed faithfully all of his days. We have in our time that collision of culture and the cross. It's exhausting at times. And part of it is that some of us are old enough to remember what we would say the good old days. If you're a baby boomer, most of us would say, and that's my age, I'm on the tail end of that at 66.6. Don't try to make anything out of those numbers. That's what the IRS says. <laughs> 66.6 is when we will reward you for your life. They haven't rewarded me yet. Okay, so I know I was going somewhere with this. Let's get into the scriptures. If it comes to me, I'll illustrate it. In the 23rd year, Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoazaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. So remember, divided kingdom. Samaria refers to the northern kingdom. 
Jerusalem or Judah refers to the southern kingdom. They're the ones that kept, if you would, charge over the place that David's heart had been. Solomon's opportunity for greatness would have been spent. And it says in this, and this is one of those things that we are reminding ourselves of, the critique of this man is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. And so this is important because that is what scars a nation, is its endeavor to, with malice or with arrogance, refute God and move opposite the ways of God. We have a nation that probably would be indicted by the forefathers of our constitution, of the government that we have enjoyed, unlike any government that has ever been permitted on the earth, and mainly because it was established under Judeo-Christian ethics, they would be shaking their heads going, can you believe it? What we penned, what we methodically evaluated, what we saw in the weaknesses of world governments, we gave God room to both work and we gave people freedom to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth, to be governed by men of God, to hallow God in the places of government. Well, we've seen what decisions have rendered in evicting God pretty much out of every institution ordained by God. And so this is important to understand that in the twilight of this prophet's life, things really haven't gotten better. In the twilight of our life as believers right now and in a church that ought to be preparing itself for ultimately transition, not retirement, transition. We're getting tired, but it's transition. It's moving from this place to the place that has been prepared. It's living with an expectation, our eyes on Israel, that at any moment that could be in fact our reality to be here and in the blink of an eye to be there. If you on this day find that to be true, but you remain seated and the majority of us are gone, it tells you what you missed, your opportunity, at least on the easy side of it. There is and will be a time in which a congregation on a day that the Lord knows we don't will be engaged in worship and there will be some taken and there will be some remaining. Who goes, I don't know. Will it be the majority of a church or will it be the minority of a church? I don't know. There will be some that will be in seemingly a church and they're not going because there's nothing about what that church has been doing or what the people have in their understanding of God that matches up with scripture. So saying that, Elisha, all of the prophets that would come following him, and there will be, their hearts would be with frequency taxed in a brokenness. They would be tested 
in their fortitude to take one more step, to not feel great discouragement, and perhaps even at times think disappointingly about what God either has done in his patience or what he has permitted in his sovereignty for correction. These things are real. They're real for us. Lord, why so long are you taking this? If Rich represents the last guy of the baby boomer generation and he missed the Jesus movement by a decision in four years, well, then what remains to be done? Well, there's revival that we would say, Lord, the harvest is white. That was the term that was used by Jesus evaluating a woman whose heart had changed in a moment in which by sovereignty and compassion he met her at a well to solve her thirst. And so we today right now, even as we look at this, we need to understand our hearts will be touched, they will be broken. We can find ourselves frustrated and angry, but we need to understand what we feel is nothing less than what these great men and women preceding us felt. But we also need to understand they're marked as remarkable because they were faithful in the charge that was given to them. The Bible highlights those who exemplify faithfulness to the charge that God gave them. They didn't use excuse. They didn't sidestep. They went straight into a hard-driven, if you would, wind of culture. They took the slaps, the accusations, the cursings, the disappointments, the loss. Elisha was that man. Advancing on, it says concerning God's heart and his temperament, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So they're getting whomped. They're the people of God, but they are getting a shellacking. And some know precisely why it's happening. Others are completely oblivious. If you would, they would assess on the contemporary part of it. Man, we're just living with nasty people. They're just nasty people. They're stealing from us. They're killing us. They're nasty. God permits nasty people to do chastening things for a nation. Israel is being permitted right now to clean a slate in Gaza. The world doesn't like what they're doing. And people can evaluate as they may with regard to how to conduct war. The fact of the matter is, if you look at what a military person would understand, they're conducting warfare, both with as much compassion as they can, but absolutely no toleration for those who with sinister intention and accomplishment brutally killed over 1,200 people, innocent lives. 
And the world is seeing what is happening globally by both a misunderstanding concerning Israel and also an unfortunate and unnecessary sympathy towards an enemy agent. This would be by comparison the same kind of thing. Man, we can't get a break. It's always something. Sabers rattling. Land encroached on. Violations without any conscience. They understood it. We scratch our heads and try to broker peace by compromising with what God has told us he will do. He will both correct them, but he will also give them favor and he will give them victory ultimately. But he's delivered them into the hands of the enemy. Seasons in which the Lord levels that field of warfare and he takes credit for it. What is going to happen? We want to keep our eyes on it because Israel is, as the scriptures have declared, a cup of trembling. And never since Israel became a nation May 14, 1948, has there been this kind of event. We've seen dramatic victories in very short time frames in which there's absolutely no doubt about it. God was with them. This is taking much longer, but the effect seems to be very, very much conclusive. You've messed with God's people. You're going to get messed with. Does the world support it? It's not starting to. They're calling Israel names, genocidal maniacs. They want a broker for peace, but not in the manner God has purposed. Does Elisha feel the weight of this? Remember that he said goodbye to his teacher, his pastor and friend, many, many years at this time. There was about a 15-year difference between Elijah and Elisha. Elisha very likely is within his early 90s right now, chronologically, maybe even older. He's gone a big distance, but this is what is his contemporary scene. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed him. This is what God will squeeze out of individuals in the highest ranks of organization or the lowest places, if you would, of desperation. He will extract from the soul that's uttered by the lips pleading, God, help me. We have some today that would say, God, help me. I am so oppressed. I am depressed. I'm tired and weary. Well, I only have an answer for you that you would say, well, that's so easy. It's Jesus. 
both in what he allows, but also in the fact that he makes great allowance for wonderful deliveries that may be just in the nick of time or may be only at the point of the essential. I don't know. I like being delivered really dramatically and I like being delivered for a long period of time with peace anchoring me where I just don't feel the sting of disappointment and frustration. I really like that a lot. And sometimes I think, and I'm worth it. I've walked a long time with him. But then an event happens and I'm going, really? Again? One more time? Lord, my heart can't take it. And he might be saying to me, right. There's a season in which your heart can't take it. And in fact, your heart can't be. Because what you've done in faithfulness, though hardship, I now reward you with. Remarkably. This speaks of a man who remarkably lives his life in faithfulness to God. And if you want remarkable, if you would, tenure, then you need to be able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but God's will. As this advances, as we see this pleading, then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. He gives them a reprieve. Israel did have a reprieve. Favor among the world governments. They tolerated, if you would, an enemy alliance right next door. The Palestinians were not friends, but they made an endeavor to be friendly to them, to employ them not realizing, or if you would, fully able to comprehend that within that grouping, Hamas would be behind the scenes, inspired by Iran to diabolically intend to annihilate them. It is beyond my imagination or even my skill set to know how billions of dollars would have been filtered in to creating a city underneath the ground that would be walked on, the citizenry, in the manner that has been exposed. Miles, hundreds of miles of tunnels and arsenals, a city under a city intending for one goal, to annihilate those who dwell in the city of God. But the Lord gives a reprieve to them. They could dwell in their tents, and they shall. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. This was the division of the nation. They just couldn't get over it. And by the way, we stand the same risks in our nation. Not getting over the sins of those who in positions of power have left God and authorized us to abandon God, to compromise sociologically, spiritually, what God says in his word, there's no compromise. I'm not giving into it and I'm not permitting it, but we've begun to take sides that are contrary to God's ways. We slide back in 
to the allowance of sin to pervade and to perverse us. It was with one nod, one vote, one careless, sympathetic allowance. And the next thing you know, you have a movement that swells and it's with power fed by Satan. And it's intending to do everything to mock God and a nation that at one time chose to follow God. And so as this continues, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. That's idol worship. We have idol worship. We worship a lot of things that technically are just things. People who portray characters, they're just things. Not all things that are in character and on a screen are wrong things. Wonderful, inspirational films have been made. Patriotic films, spiritual films. There's a lot of stuff, though, that has been simply, quite honestly, satanic, corrupting, defiling. And there's an appetite for it. And so he left of the army of Jehoshaphat only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust of threshing. Now the rest of the acts of, Jehoz, of Jehoaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Two Joashes, there's a boy Joash, who would come and preside as the king over Judah. This is the other one. This is the son of this guy. Didn't do so well. Because his father didn't do so well. Because his father before him didn't do so well. Not many in the lineage of the kings of Israel could do so well because they had been so corrupted. And so the Lord had sent distinguished prophets who would always be speaking and doing his will that there might be repentance, change. Jehoaz reigns in Israel is the title in verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did, notice this 11, the repetitiveness of this, evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam and the sons of Nabat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Psalms 1 is so classic because it tells us really what we ought to be doing that we might not be vulnerable to sin I'm going to find it and read it, especially in a season in which it will be incumbent that we make decisions that honor God and we pray for our elections. But blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree, not a tree that is to become an idol to worship at, but it is likening him to a strong tree. It's a tree 
that is planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's the man, that's the woman, that's the child of God, whose desire is to be pleasing to God in walking in the ways of God. It's a great verse, both with promise and ultimately, I think, evaluation. It's a great one. Serving faithfully and remarkably, it happens ultimately by a commitment that one makes and stays true to, regardless of the conditions that you're living in, of the chance of war, of the attacks of culture. You stand with the Lord. You walk closely in his footsteps. And so evil continues. Death prevails. The next one comes up. The rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Several names that are replicated are simply what we would say. Another name, same version, different person. Elisha, verse 14, which is where we're at, and we will conclude there at verse 21 had become sick with illness and notice this of which he would die. A great man will have both inclination that his time draws near and he moves in either preparation for that transition or resists and maybe there's an exception. Most often though, when that time comes, a man, a woman knows it and they've made preparations for it. What we talk about in the church is, have you made preparations for a transition? And have you done so because you right now have lived out your life in faithfulness to God and you're not afraid ultimately of the transition and ultimately your life having been utilized by God now has a remarkable testimony, do you have that kind of grist, confidence in God? When I left here, I was saying something to Rivs. I said, Rivs, if I don't return, take care of the teaching. And I think I got a naval salute or something. Aye, aye, captain. Can do. And he could do it. But the entire time I'm leaving, I'm going, okay, ignition, lights, wipers. Why do I need wipers? Lord, Help me to do this really safely. I don't ever leave a service. And so my entire drive was, and I could hear the Twilight movie theme going on. Lord, keep my car on the road, you know. And why? Because I do have a tenacity to live as long as I can exercising and faithfulness so that my life has a remarkable conclusion that people can make remarks about me that glorify God. There will be people saying things about me. May it be that what they say 
are remarks of what God did in my life. What they saw me do about my life. Not my perfect walk, but a walk that says remarkable, worthy of seeing tribute to God and the decisions he made regardless of what he faced. And so Elisha right now, in a position of weakness, basically taking a bed right now, no longer able to walk on his feet, but he's conscience and he is being sought for conviction by an unlikely person, a king that really hadn't done so well either. And I find this to be interesting because as he's there on the sickbed, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and notice this. It says, he wept over his face and said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. If you return to the first chapter of Second Kings, you will see that that's almost a verbatim quote of what Elisha said when he, with his eyes, saw that Elijah was being taken up in a fiery chariot being drawn by horses. Because that was acknowledging what Elijah had told him would be the sign by which if you see this, then the request that you have asked of me, which is a difficult one, in which a double portion will be given to you, it shall be granted. You need to be there to see it. And that's one of the things that we need to understand is that in his mind, he didn't separate it from the person that he needed to see in that transition. We need to be those who say, I'm going to be there in that transition. I am going to be there in that transition that I might receive from the Lord that need that I have to carry on like that person. I'm not talking necessarily about the hospital bed visitation. I've been in plenty of those. But what it means is that your eyes, based on the faithfulness of someone's ministry to you personally and the remarkable testimony that they have, will you be there to take a mantle that has been left indelibly marked on your heart because of their life? This man is not going to be able to make up his kingship. He's not going to be able to say, undo what it is he did or what he permitted to take place. But it does show you that the influence of Elisha was so remarkable in his faithfulness to God that this man remembered a quote. And the only thing that I can think of is that it became a story that Elisha would tell to any who would listen. I saw Elijah taken up into heaven. I followed him. I burned my oxen plow and I offered my oxen before the Lord when I agreed to follow God by following that man. If you go back and read that story, when he was essentially linking himself to Elijah and Elijah said, come. And he said, ah, can I take care of some business? I got to do some feeding, got to do some work around the ranch, got to take care of some stuff. And Elijah just kept on walking. And within the next beat of his heart, Elisha, the plow became wood for the sacrificial fire and the oxen 
that were his responsibility to his father became that which he would give to the Lord. He would say in that moment to Elijah, I'm following you. I'm not returning to where it is I came. I was good in where I came from. I learned a lot, but I've come to a point right now where that's history. And right now, it's his story that I want told. And that's the beauty of the life of Elisha, who in the double portion that he received engaged with people. It didn't mean he changed all the people. It means that he was willing to inspire any that would hear, any that would choose, he would teach them. In essence, it's not too far from what the church experience is. We sit before the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. I'm reading from it. I'm teaching from it, expounding from it. There are others that can do so even better. And maybe I'm inferior to thousands who can do way better. I'm doing what I can, how it is that God has made me. I think that for the Lord in this season, he says, good. Because remember, you've told everybody about your miserable failures in school. But you've also let them know that I allowed you to triumph. The second grader that failed became ultimately the graduate who succeeded. You did teach successfully. And yet you failed miserably in college. I actually didn't fail miserably. I was just miserable in college. Only to be made a musician, in which I shared last week. You'll never be a poet. <laughs> You'll, you don't even know notes on the piano. You'll never be a singer. And in all of those things, God said, yes, you will be. Under my terms, you're following me. Elisha, though, notice this. As he receives, in my opinion, the compliment of a quotation that he certainly would have known, that came from my mouth, in which I tenaciously clung to my teacher, that came from my mouth. And you, not having clung to God, have come in all this distance to me right now for some reason, and it was for some reason. This guy knew that the enemies were attacking and he found solace and comfort in the fact that as Elisha was here, a lot, things were, a lot of things were far different. They were almost suppressed. There is an enemy, but there's also a containment of that enemy because of his presence. Do you realize how important your role is as a member of the body of Christ is the containment of the enemy, his advances? Just by being who you are, if you would, an Elisha to someone or to many, your confidence in your walk with God is a suppression to oppression. It's something that comforts one in a way in which you know that God is with you and you're not afraid. You permit any circumstance to be the event in which a transition may happen, just like I did. I wasn't afraid to go out of the doors, but I did pray, Lord, help me in my drive from this place to return to this place. 
because there's things that I'd love to still do for you. But I also realized that several weeks ago, one of our sisters was delivered from essentially the place that I was going to. It was for her a great deliverance, a marvelous, incredible, miraculous deliverance that she would have another day and another day. When in this situation one finds themselves incapacitated, which Elisha did, he still summoned from within an act that the Spirit of God would give him a prophetic inclination. This is what I need to tell this guy. This is what I need to share. If he obeys, he's going to have victory. If he doesn't, he's going to have defeat. And so as Joash weeps over him, quoting him, no doubt, touching his heart, saying, I haven't lived like you have. But if you can hear me, and if you'd oblige me, then seek God on behalf of me. And this is essentially it. Take a bow, he says in 15, and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. I like that. I'm going to stay connected with you until my transition. What I'm telling you to do, I will do with you. I'm going to connect with you. He didn't have the strength necessarily to draw the bow, but he attached the spiritual strength that he had to see that when that bow was launched, it would have absolute accuracy in where it was targeted. And he said, open the east window, and he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord, deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. I've partnered with you on this. I'm prophesying on behalf of you. Do this. They shot it together. The symbolism now takes place in which she said, essentially, this strike that you must make is to have an intended outcome of basically ridding you of an enemy that is against all Israel and has scorned me, laughed at me. You had to take the Syrians out. And he said, take the arrows in verse 18. And so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And so he struck three times and stopped. Verse 19. And the man of God, this is Elijah, was angry with him. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. See, he did great with the hand of Elisha upon him. But then the responsibility came in which his zeal needed to be proclaimed through an action. And that action was you take those bows and you smash them into slivers, splinters if you must. But you whip the ground with those arrows as Syria must be stricken. And it wasn't passively just three. Three's good. That's a good number. Sometimes we give up after three. We give up after the number of convenience. We give up after a number of days. We just give up. And Elisha was frustrated because he had put his hand on this man. 
And he's basically saying, we got an opportunity for our nation and you probably have an opportunity to have a remarkable finish to your life if you do this. Oh, I'm so tired. I gotta go, I gotta take my nap. I'm so sorrowful the way you feel. Elisha didn't care about his circumstance. What he wanted was for this guy's circumstance to change for the benefit of the nation. And ultimately, even if this guy's reputation could change, where he does in the last moment, perhaps of his life or his power and authority, he could change things. Why do we stop short of the victory? What is it? that turns us from having complete victory. Well, everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a reason for why they stopped short of what God says, finish it conclusively. <coughs> Until it turns into powder. And Elisha would have said, great, you got these guys. They're never going to pester you again right now. It's... You got three victories. That's it. The rest is going to be nuisancing and destruction. And so Elisha, it says, verse 20, does this. He dies. And they buried him. And notice this, because it says it was going to happen. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. And so it was when they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And so this is a great conclusive word because it's a picture ultimately that we had a savior that Elisha was privileged in his life to portray in the excellency of both compassion and in miracles. And our Savior ultimately was the one and still is that targets our life for success and gives us the strength and the effectual outcome of a great return. He's the Savior who in his dying breath, though, was the one who also said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, that's what I'm asking of you. And he was that savior who went into a tomb. The tomb that he went into was of stone. The tomb that Elisha went into was of stone. It seems to be that it was subordinated a little bit above and beneath. And it shows us that in humility he rested, obviously enough to where it was no consequence for the lid to be popped in the bones or the body of another man dropped in. And it's a picture ultimately of the resurrection power of God for any who in faith fall upon him. It's a beautiful, conclusive picture that even in death, Elisha would be permitted to speak about God and the power of God. It's a beautiful picture of what the church can live expectantly for. That though we die, there will be a day we live. And others who mark that day of our death can say remarkable in how he lived, how she lived, what she said. I can quote them.
from this situation. I walked those footsteps with them in that difficult time. And this is how they walked it. This is how I'm going to walk it. And Elisha's life is a testimony of that. I was thinking back, and I'll conclude here. If the mic goes out, you know I'm going to take time to put the batteries in, okay? When I was a little boy playing cowboys and Indians, go ahead, take me <laughs> to the social corrector. But cowboys and Indians is what we played, we baby boomers. The thing that I really lacked, though, was the hat. I never had a white hat. I had the red one, the fake one. Rob and I both had fake red hats. No cowboy on TV ever had red hats. We did. A life of humiliation, born for it. Bald, I have to live it. And now I say, hey, shampoo's been cheap. I don't need it. But to get back to the illustration, it's important. What we saw in the production of cowboy and Indian movies back then is that the cowboys had two things that needed to be done well in the movies. They had to die with their boots on, and they had to lie if you would, in their last moment, splayed on the earth. There wasn't a movie that you saw, John Wayne or anybody else. Well, I go back farther than his movies, though. You died with your boots on, and when you died, you had to be splayed. That's it. Didn't matter how fast you were rolling off the horse and when you got shot, you always had to go, ah! <laughs> breathe your last. And I made sure that when we played Cowboys and Indians, if you died, you better have that position. Your boots better be on, and you better look like this. That was always my productions. And the thing that I share with you is that that's actually not a bad reality for you and I to remember. Jesus would say in John chapter 12, verse 25 through 28, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am there, my servant will be also. In essence, the picture that I see is, that's kind of a good thing. The boots that I wear now are the sandals of the preparation of peace, the gospel. I wear these. I take footsteps of faith. I may not be dying with my boots on, but I'm dying with my sandals on. And the other thing that I know is that if Jesus is saying these words, it means that I love my life only to the degree that I love God more than my life. And that my death is reckoned to him because I choose to die with my arms outstretched. My final breath and the look that I ought to have is I'm crucified with him. That's what the cowboys ultimately were saying in their movies to me that I would look back on. That I can say, as Elisha lived, Lord, may I be faithful. As was moving for someone who did not do all that well, it was remarkable as Richard gives us these trivial illustrations with red cowboy hats and how you ought to die.
Part of that is true. Humiliation is appointed for us. Welcome to wearing my red cowboy hat. But the other part is we make it through life by dying as the Lord died. He enables us to walk in his life by dying to ourselves. It's, in a great, it's a great evaluation of life. And so with that, we conclude there. Thanks.